Hi, welcome to the Zero Knowledge Podcast. And uh, today we're going to be talking about decentralized storage once again. This is sort of the second part in a three-part series that we're doing on the topic. And in this episode, what we want to actually look at is um, some of the different solutions out there, kind of do a survey of what's around right now. Um, but I think before we start, we wanted to have a bit of a conversation about like why these things are coming out at all. So why right now are things coming out? So as I was reading a few articles about this, I noticed that there seems to be like three main points that a lot of these solutions are selling. Um, they basically say that they can be cheaper. They can provide better security against uh data being shared or lost, and that they could potentially improve speed. Um, and I think, obviously, different solutions might highlight different parts of this, but I think we could start maybe from there. Yeah, I mean, the the, the starting, the natural starting topic is, um, what are we trying to do with this? Like, why why have this decentralized storage at all? And like, what, what problem does it aim to solve? And the, the three things that you mentioned, I think is a good way to dig in. There's obviously more, it's, mm. it's always more, but I think these um, are the core of what, what's trying to be accomplished. And then there's some downsides to this, like you said, and, and uh, we can look at some different uh, versions out there and talk a little bit maybe about um, what to look out for when you see something new in this space. Cool. Let's start with the first thing then. So the claim is decentralized storage will be cheaper. And it's interesting because I've actually heard rebuttals to that. But what do you think, Fred? I think it's an interesting uh, thing to think about. So I, I, it's definitely not clear cut, right? Um, storage is incredibly cheap. And you have uh, economies of scale, like Amazon is buying 50% of the world's hard drives or whatever, so they can get a huge discount on storage. Um, but at the same time, Amazon employs thousands of people. I mean, they build a system that then employs thousands of developers maintaining that system. Those developers will be need will need to be paid. Like so, mm. they need to add a healthy profit mar margin on top. Now, profit margins in the storage world are incredibly thin, but mm. they still have to be healthy enough to like build a business. Um, in this decentralized world, the concept is that you don't pay developers to maintain the system. You build the system once, and then you just have storage providers that you pay. Uh, and essentially, their profit margin is they need to be able to pay for hard drives, network, etc., but not much else. So um, the fact that it's intended to be like normal people running their own computers on this network also kind of says that maybe uh, the intention is not to have a huge profit margin and be like competitive, but to build a healthy ecosystem. Um, I don't know. Do you think some of this will be also like at the beginning, it isn't necessarily cheaper, but later on it becomes cheaper when we get economies of scale? Or do you think it is like right off the bat, like the, those margins are gone and therefore it'll be cheaper? Um, uh, so what I think um, will happen is that it will appear to be a lot cheaper, but in reality, um, you're actually trading off cost for something else. 
So with Amazon, for instance, you get whatever they have, seven ninths of availability or redundancy and um, uh, good performance, like uh, they have data centers everywhere, high network speeds, high drive speeds, high reliability, you get a super top quality service. And actually in a lot of their services, you can trade off, uh, for instance, if you put um, stuff on Amazon Glacier, you're trading availability for money. Like you're, you're saying, I don't need to access my data right away. Um, so I'm willing to pay less to not have that immediate access. Uh, there's reduced redundancy storage on S3 that you can reduce this uh, seven ninths or whatever they have of um, redundancy to something less and pay less for it. Um, so what we'll see in the decentralized world is essentially a lot of these companies are already marketing like their cheapest possible contracts, which means like you store it on one computer or two computers and like you don't have at all the same performance guarantees that you have from Amazon, but you're also paying way, way less. So I think um, walking this path of like what is actually value for money is hard. Uh, it's not just looking at the bottom line, like it, it's looking at the bottom line and what you get for it. And people are like notoriously bad at doing this, even in the traditional centralized storage world. You've also mentioned like in a previous conversation that we had about this, where it's, you have a lot more um, options to customize. And so in a way, like you kind of just said here, where it's like the value for money, you can actually potentially just like get exactly the configuration that you're looking for, something that wouldn't necessarily be offered yeah. in these larger solutions. Like a, a, a good part of the world doesn't need um, like S3 level performance for whatever they're doing. Like if you are just taking backups and uploading somewhere, you don't need the same um, performance characteristics as Instagram. Uh, so uh, having that flexibility and, and the full configurability from a single service is, I mean, that's value in itself, uh, where right now you might switch around to different services for different properties and depending on what you want to pay and what you want to do. Um, so have like making all that into one service is obviously a value add as well. So then the next one we had here is security. Security has two sort of two Two ideas here. One is security, i.e. your data is protected and your pri it's private. And the other is security against that data being lost. There is an argument that you know, on the, in a decentralized setup that it is safer. And I, I sometimes, I don't know, I, I, I'm curious about that one. I mean, I, I think we all understand that with a centralized organization, you can always have you basically just need keys to that castle, and then you actually do have access to everything. Um, at the same time, there are a lot of safeguards against having keys to that castle. But then I wonder, like, if it's decentralized, is there not more open? Is there not more potential for attacks? Is there not more potential for data to be lost? Definitely. So I think there. This goes back almost to a closed source versus open source conversation, where. Um, you know, the, the argument for open source is that it's, it's transparent and it's, it's inspectable. I can audit the code and I can say this is safe for what I need it to do. Not many people are actually able to, to make that determination, though. So um, there is that trade-off of, like, do you trust a company that their closed source black box behaves the way 
that you think it does and that it's safe. Um, there are centralized storage solution, solutions that provide end-to-end -end encryption. I mean, you, you could end-to-end you could -end encrypt your storage on S3, for instance. I mean, you just encrypt it before you send it to them. Uh, so on the encryption side, I wouldn't say that there's any clear security benefits. Um, but on the sort of acting in an open system versus a closed black box, um, you never have any guarantee that Amazon doesn't you know, declare bankruptcy tomorrow and shut down all their servers. It's very unlikely, but you have no guarantees. And in an open system, you have some guarantees around how this system will operate. And this is, this is a bit of like the redundancy factor, I guess, because there's many, many entities holding many pieces of data instead of one entity basically holding all of the data that... Um, if something happened to one of these, like in the decentralized case, if something happened to one of these entities or actors, then there's a ton of other actors potentially holding your data. Except that when you actually dig into a lot of these systems, a lot of the decentralized storage systems, they're not it's not necessarily that you have every file on every computer. No, that, like that would every... be uh, hugely inefficient. I mean, then you're kind of <laughs> rebuilding uh, Ethereum that is like a 100% replicated state machine. Um, <laughs> and like saying that everyone stores everything isn't going to work. So mm -hmm. um, at some point you have to draw limits and it seems that a lot of the solutions that we've been looking at and we might talk about later is um, you have some sort of contract base. So you're saying like, I'm going to get this contract from uh, one of the peers and they promise to store my data for this long. Uh, at this price, and then your strategy to increase availability and increase your security is getting multiple contracts for the same data. And it's mm -hmm. essentially then up to you to say, how many people are you willing to pay for to store to store this stuff for you? Um, so you could, could theoretically have everyone on the network store your file, it's just going to cost a lot of money. Um, but um, Again, this goes back to this flexibility of do I want one person that I trust to store it or do I need um, multiple people or how many people do I need? And none of this is actually very well defined in what the expected system strategy is. So I think that's a, a big thing that's still hmm. to be worked out. And then our last one was speed. And I have written speed question mark. Um, <laughs> that's that's a big, big questionable one. If you can actually improve speed, like I mean, but okay. So the argument here is the reason that there is any like speed delay in a centralized example is that it's not that the data is actually in super close proximity to you at all times. There are actually large data centers in certain regions, and so it'll be faster than say you were getting everything from North America and you're living in Europe but it's not that you're getting everything from like down the street. And so that is, that is like the, that's what I've always understood is like the argument for decentralized as a, as, as giving you the opportunity for higher speeds. Yeah. But does that really happen? <laughs> um, <laughs> to some degree. I mean, uh, if you look at the BitTorrent network, it has millions of pairs and it, it is actually a very well distributed network much more distributed than, um, say, S3. Mm -hmm. But it's, um, 
there are content distribution networks who make it their business to have like a server in every major city on the world. So they mm -hmm. still don't have millions of servers everywhere, but they have a server in every major city. And, and at that point, like, mm, are, how much of a performance gain can you actually get? Um, so I, I think it's more about like you, you replicate the storage properties of something like S3 with the distribution properties of something like a CDN. So you're kind of combining both of those technologies and um, potentially having a gain there. Um, but I think uh, when talking about speed and performance, it's, it's useful to separate the network speed from like the drive speed, the performance of the server. So right, like um, Amazon will have top quality servers, like it's their incentive to provide the best service because that's what they're being paid for. So they'll have good server servers with good drive speed and whatever else. An individual actor on this market doesn't necessarily have any incentive to provide a good server that will serve this up, even though like they might be closer to you. The question again becomes there like, what's the trade off between proximity and like actual server performance, how fast you're able to send this file. And then let's, um, it's it's useful to talk about the average users like the average pair in a p2p networks network speed is not going to be that good right mm. like not that many people have fiber and even those that do have like 100 megabit fiber whereas uh, amazon has terabytes of bandwidth um, so you can you can pretty much always max out your own like personal private network connection speed through Amazon. But if you actually put things on a P2P network, BitTorrent works because it pulls the network bandwidth of multiple pairs so that you can still exceed the speed of any single pair. But I mean, many of these solutions that are being proposed now, they don't have that torrenting kind of aspect. Some do, uh, not all. And so then the question is like, if you're limited to the speed of a single pair, everything will be dependent on that single pair's connectivity. Now, if they're in the same house as you and it's LAN, it's, you know, gigabit or 10 right. gigabit or whatever. Um, so like, it, it's probably great. Uh, but um, I, the question like, will that happen? Probably not, maybe, but probably mm. not. We were also talking a little bit about the downside, generally, of decentralized storage. And the current, I mean, the most obvious right now is the inferior UX, just because these centralized storage companies have been, I mean, that's kind of one of the things they swooped in. We talked about this last episode, actually. They came in with these really clean, easy interfaces that kind of anybody could easily set up. You didn't have to have deep technical knowledge to be able to use this kind of stuff. And, um, and so, yeah, they kind of were able in a way to replace the old P2P and people were still happy. Now with the new decentralized solutions, you see, um, I mean, I think people are aware of the fact that, I mean, it's, it's existed for already a couple of years. They're aware of the fact that the UX could be better and the UX should actually start really competing with these, um, like the big professional centralized services. Um, so I'm going to mention that as a current downside, but kind of like 
yeah. in the process of being fixed and is quite fixable. I think that's, uh, I mean, uh, a fair statement to make. There are certain things that are better than others, but I mean, in general, it's still a very like geeky type of sphere where you kind of need to enjoy the bad UX a little bit to, I don't know, feel like you're hacking on something <laughs> or feel like you're a hardcore. <laughs> and then, yeah. but then like <laughs> that doesn't work for most people. So there needs to be improvements made on, on that to make it actually pleasant to use by a normal person. But then there's some other, so the other big downside that you kind of mentioned here was this, uh, there's no existing reputation market. So there's no, there's no, like, whereas all of these larger companies, you know what you're dealing with, you know that there's, I mean, there's, it's very important that they maintain those reputations. Whereas if you're dealing with a decentralized one, there's nothing that really can guide you right, right now. So, so going back to that contract model, you sign a contract with someone and um, say that they're going to store my five or six months, but they have very little incentive to actually hold that contract. Um, I mean, uh, there's no discussion at all about what a legal repercussion to that might be. Mm -hmm. And uh, I don't think there ever will be any. So we're going to have to rely on reputation markets to say that, you know, this person has uh, stored, you know, files for this long and this much space and have like completed this many contracts or something to say that the this peer is reputable. And um, if there is no such thing, then there's no disincentive for them to just go, I'm bored with this, I'm just going to shut down my node and not fulfill the contract. So that's, mm. um, again, like you, you always have to plan for that, obviously, even if they don't willfully shut down their node, they might have a power outage or something. So again, it's back to availability uh, and redundancy and all that kind of stuff. You need to pay to have multiple contracts, otherwise you might get screwed. Um, but, it, but like you're saying, these big actors, they have a big reputation with a huge incentive to not besmirch that in any way. So if they lose your yeah. data in any way, they're like, holy shit, we're fucked. Whereas if, you know, some random person on this decentralized network loses your data, no one knows or cares. <laughs> so now we're going to, we have a, we have a list here of a couple companies um, that have they're I mean, they're all kind of trying to tackle these, these points we just raised in different ways. Um, the ones we've, we want to look at are companies like Storage, Sia, Filecoin, uh, MadeSafe. We do have a few others on the list that we maybe didn't go as deep into, like Cryptic and Swarm, which we can talk about maybe a little bit. And we also have here some, these are, these are not really data storage, they're more like um, database yeah, companies. I think it's, it's an interesting distinction to make between data storage and database. Ultimately, it's the same thing. You're storing data. It's just that in one form, you're storing it slightly more structured. And the company or the, the goal of the company might be to create some query language or something like that for this data so that you can kind of automate things more. I mean, to any developer, the difference between a database and just pure raw data storage is kind of obvious. But um, from an implementation point of view and from and like it gets muddled even more in this space because something like IPFS is content addressable storage, right? So exactly. 
if you if the content is a value, you get a key for it, and then you have a key value pair, and now you have a key value database on IPFS. Uh, so if you're just building a key value database, you know how much better can you be than that? Um, these companies usually have like a different approach to um, availability and and redundancy and that kind of thing because it. Mm. I don't know. They they can have some different properties, I guess. Um, but it's it's an interesting uh, distinction. I think uh, don't have to go into into it any deeper yeah. than that. But we may maybe we do actually a, a show on just that, just on the um, the database type companies. The ones we were thinking of here were Streamer, Bluezella, Bluezell, Bluezell, and Big Chain DB. All right. So the first company that we uh, kind of looked at was Storage. Storage is pretty, it's been around for a while, actually. Yeah. It's, uh, I, th- I think it's 2014. I think that's a kind of recurring theme in this space. Uh, some are really new, but some have actually been around for a long time. Like IPFS has been around for a super long time. Filecoin is the incentive layer on top and it's kind of more recent, but uh, MadeSafe has been around for a super long time, yeah. Totally. Um, and I'm, I can totally imagine that these companies have also gone through iterations, like every like every startup, every tech company, um, but yeah, we're gonna try to we're gonna try to cover some of their characteristics and maybe look at them through the lens of the stuff that we were talking about before um, to see yeah how it, like where it where it kind of ranks on performance. I think one of the other things that I'm thinking of as we're kind of going through this is if like providing decentralized storage is something you want to do. Like this is, this is where I'm trying, cause this might be something I want to do. So I definitely want to like understand what does it mean as a user to actually participate in these networks? And like, would a casual user be able to jump in and start playing with this stuff? Or is it like really only for applications? Yeah. All right. So our first one was storage without, so just, <laughs> For those who are just listening, storage, storage, is uh, it's it's missing the A and the E at the end, so it's S T O R J, storage, one of these, where they drop the vowels. <laughs> <A> startup name. <laughs> Classic. Um, yeah, so we have we the files in storage are encrypted, sharded, and each shard is stored on a different peer. Um, so I think that's actually a, a pretty common property of these systems is this sharding action. So maybe it's useful to dig into what that actually means. So essentially, if you're uploading a file that, that I mean, you're uploading a file that's 100 megs, if you shard that into um, 10 shards, it's essentially just 10 pieces of that file that are 10 megabytes each. And then um, what storage does is it automatically shards it into... I don't know how many shards actually, but then stores these shards on different peers. So if one peer goes down, you're losing one part of the file. In traditional hard drive space, you have this thing called RAID, and there's different RAID strategies um, where like a fully replicated system, I think that's RAID zero, Uh, but then you have different algorithms to try to basically have redundancy over multiple drives without having to replicate everything 100%. So there's versions called striping and whatever else. And um, I'm running it on my NAS and essentially I can lose one out of my four drives and not lose any data at all. So if I use the same storage algorithm, I could 
basically replicates my data such that one, like if I had data on four peers, peers one of them could go down and I wouldn't lose anything at all. And so sharding is actually a key piece in like being able to achieve a system like this. Is sharding super different from like bit torrenting? Like the little, like... Not really. Um, the way that BitTorrent works is that you, uh, ad it's still content addressable, So, but you address the whole piece. You don't ad address a small piece of it. Um, mm -hmm. But you're, when it's downloading, it's basically saying, can I have piece number X out yeah. of this content? Um, so, I mean, it... it I don't know similar how it concept, varies. Yeah, yeah, it's. I mean, it's a very similar concept. I mean, it's. It could be identical in theory. Huh. I, I think their implementation is slightly different, but I mean, it's, I it, in theory, it, you could basically because it almost do the product. It almost just. It sounds a little bit like just a new name for it. Yeah, <laughs> I don't know. yeah. But maybe maybe I'm wrong. Just the way you described it, it sounded super super similar. Um, I think the big difference is that in BitTorrent, the shards, the the pieces are very small and. Um, it's part of the pro. I think it's part of the protocol what the pieces, the size of the pieces are. Whereas in uh, something like storage or other solutions, you may want much bigger pieces, so fewer That's shards, uh, or you want um, to have like a customizable amount of shards. So it's it shouldn't be bound to the protocol of what size these shards are. Um, let's go back to storage then. So the company itself. So how how is storage working? Uh, it's it's operating on this contract basis as well. But what I think is interesting for them is that they say they're payment agnostic. Uh, so they're they're kind of saying you can plug storage into any blockchain. So you can have a Bitcoin storage, an Ether storage, a fiat storage, where uh, you know you can choose to settle this contract that you're making with someone in whatever way you want. Um, practically, I think they're probably going to build something on Ethereum as their product, but then you could like apply the protocol agnostically to anything else. Um, so it's, I think it's an interesting approach where they're taking kind of a, pro a protocol level approach to this rather than saying we're, we're a set of smart contracts on top of Ethereum. Hmm. When in the in the in the context of performance, um, this is a this is one of these examples we were talking about earlier where you could really choose and um, basically decide exactly your kind of custom custom requirements, and therefore you would actually get the exact performance for the buck that you want. Yeah. Right. So it's uh, because it's one of these systems that are contracts based. Um, Theoretically, you should be able to yeah, fully customize the type of performance that you want. But I mean, it, some of this stuff goes back to implementation, though, because ultimately, if, you, if it's part of the contract that you can see where a pair is and that's reliable, that's another like thing that you can customize on the performance side. But if you can't see the location, you might up with three servers in India and you're in the US and it's not very performant at all, despite having many pairs. So it's sort of like um, when it comes to analyzing performance of any of these, it's really hard to say until we actually have a running system where you know the network is what it's supposed to be. 
And I'm wondering, like, I don't, I, you, you haven't tried storage yourself, have you? I have not tried storage, but I've tried, well, I've obviously worked a lot with IPFS. Yeah. Um, I've tried uh, Sia coin. I actually set up a miner for that at one point just to see mm. what it was like. Uh, but I've not really tried any of the others. So made safe. I'm not even sure if it's usable storage. I'm not even sure if it's usable either. Like if they have a public thing you can run. Cause I'm, yeah, I'm just curious, like, again, from the sort of like somebody who wants to experiment with this stuff, like how complicated would this be actually to, to get going? Made safe. You just mentioned as well. Made safe is also one of the older, I mean, in the space, well, by older, we mean like three years old or something like that. It's not like old, old, but definitely it's been in the, in the storage space before. I think there was a lot of excitement and people looking at it. Um, I know from reading about them back then and then reading about them now, it looks like they've changed quite a lot. Um, now, according to what they're releasing in terms of their comms, um, they actually aren't necessarily looking at having people be responsible for the storage but rather like autonomous storage so, yeah what that means in practice i'm not really sure but that their pitch is interesting and it's something that kind of rings true uh so it um i mean the proof is in the pudding at the end of the day but um they're kind of arguing that <clears throat> this contracts based thing is kind of stupid and that it should be computers Fully, like a fully autonomous network. You just start a computer and you start your node on that computer and then it handles everything else. So it, it kind of negotiates these contracts for you with the whole network. But there isn't a single pair that, that can change their prices individually. So the price is decided by the network as a whole. And um, like all the negotiation of where to send files and who stores what pieces and what it costs and what their availability and blah, blah, blah is, is determined by the protocol of this network. And I think that's an awesome idea. Uh, but again, I, I haven't seen any of this code, so I can't say like if it's going to work. I don't really know what the incentive structures are because at the end of the day, if, if it's something that the network determines as a whole, um, you will end up with issues like cost of running the, this on your machine is way, way cheaper in, say, China than it is in the U.S. So wouldn't that just mean that all pairs essentially end up in China because that's the cheapest place to run? And so the network is enforcing this lowest common denominator property <laughs> and outcompetes anyone that operates in a more expensive space. Hmm. It also sounds like it takes it takes away that what we were talking about before where like you could because you could customize you could actually get exactly what you want. It sort of sounds like here you don't have Yeah, that. here they just kind of say you you should want x and therefore hmm. that's what you're going to get. Um, but it also it also sounds a little bit like the UX might be a little bit easier. Like the whole yeah. the whole thing might just be easier to set up and like you said like a lot more hands-off and uh that might be very appealing to a certain certain group of people as well For sure. um, they have an incentivization structure um planned so they have something called the safe coin which is set to be released in 2018 
Um, I think we did look at it, but it wasn't quite clear how it was going to operate. Um, it, all that has been stated is it's not proof of work. Uh, so that's going to be interesting. Yeah, I mean, my guess would be that it's some sort of proof of storage based uh, thing like CL or whatever else. Like basically you mine by making storage space available and the more storage space you make available, the more money you get. Yeah. Uh, kind of thing. I actually, it's funny though, because like I've also heard proof of, like I've heard proof of storage described as a form of proof of work. So I, like that you could, that they were so almost interchangeable. Right. Uh, I think there's a couple of different ways to talk about proof of storage. Like one thing is just like the, the kind of technical mathematical proof that you have stored something. <laughs> And the other way is um, that it's where it's talked as a replacement of proof of work, or basically instead of devoting CPU power, you're devoting drive power. And um, there's other like proof of capacity. I don't know. There's like proof of uh, memory usage, proof of like network capacity, and, and a couple of these other things where they're trying to exploit different resources than CPU power. And like they're all different, like, yeah. Uh, worked out to a different degree of security. Um, I, the the drive space one seems to be running on a couple of blockchains and seems to be working well, so I have no reason to doubt that it works as a proof-of-work mechanism. So when we asked ourselves about like performance, because it's not really out there, we, we actually don't have that much information on this on MadeSafe in terms of performance. But next up, we, we're going to talk about like kind of our... Our favorite one of the ones we know the most you know the most so ipfs what does it stand for exactly <laughs> interplanetary file system yeah cool um so i think um yeah ipfs is a well-known entity it's been around for a long time it's been used by a lot of people um but the way to think about ipfs is just as a sort of networking layer um where you have no other guarantee that any files will be stored other than by yourself. So if you start an IPFS node and you make a file available on that node, it's now available on the network. But if someone else downloads it uh, by default, I think it caches it for a certain amount of time. But there's this concept of pinning content. So another node can say, I want to pin this, making sure that it will always stay on their server as well. But it's up to the other individual actor to do that. Like you can't say, I want someone else to pin my content. Um, there's just no mechanism at all for that. Uh, and that's sort of what um, Filecoin aims to introduce, like being able to say, I want you to pin my content. <laughs> and um, as, uh, essentially, you, you need some incentivization there that like this person that is pinning your content needs to be paid. But just playing IPFS is, is you just think of it as you run your own web server kind of thing. What is it mostly used for right now, actually? So in, in our company, uh, we use it in a couple of different ways for essentially doing off-chain storage. So uh, you store some content on uh, an IPFS node that you own, and then you put the content address on the blockchain. And... And like the guarantee you have is that the, the content address on the blockchain is guaranteed. Like you can never manipulate that in any way. So you can guarantee that whatever file you get 
is the one that was said to be on the on chain um, and we use this mostly in private and consortium networks where you can guarantee that um, this person will be running this IPFS node you know as long as the network is running because it's in their incentive to make the files available but I've heard of a lot of other use cases where someone might run an IPFS node in their office and uh, route all like npm package downloads through it so rather than you know downloading the whole internet every time you run npm install you um you download it from a local cache server and you can you can do this with a cache server like a traditional cache server it's just way easier to set up an ipfs node so it's like any dev can just start up an ipfs node and do this um but you know setting up a cache server that serves up the internal network i mean it's just kind of harder. <laughs> Do you know, uh, like, how would you compare something like IPFS to Nutella? Like, have you ever thought of that comparison? Not really, but I mean, it would be similar. Um, I mean, it's, They're uh, protocols without any, like, you can you can use them without, yeah. like, if you add an incentivization layer to either of those things, then it, like, IPFS and Nutella would just act as the protocol underlying it. So I think, I mean, it's similar for sure. Um, they both use DHTs for peer discovery, as far as I know. So, um, I mean, it's it's DHT plus content addressable storage. Mm. I don't know if Nutella is content addressable, though. I think it's just human discovery kind of uh, addressable. Like if you you'd connect a node and you can get a file list from them. But you can't say, I want the file with this particular content. Um, so I think that may be the difference. Okay. So then the protocol lab, protocol labs, um, are the creators of IPFS originally. Um, and they have also decided, I mean, they've decided to create an incentivization layer, um, in order to encourage people to actually store other people's data. Um, we will probably be going a little deeper into this, into Filecoin in another episode. So... We don't need to go too, too deep into it in this, but maybe just to give a sense of it, like what what really does that add to IPFS? So it's a, it, it adds this ability of saying, I want X peers to store my content for me. Um, and you don't necessarily need to run a node yourself to basically make that content available. So you can just say, I have some content, I want this amount of peers to make that available to the public and um, upload it to the network and, and have pay for that in some way. And I think the other thing, I mean, it, I think it also, I mean, you're, you're speaking then from the user's perspective, but then there's also like, why would you, like right now having an IPFS node is cool if you have stuff that you're hosting, but there's no, there's nothing, like there, you wouldn't actually like start one up for other people unless maybe you're friends with them and they're like can you do that and you'll be like cool but like <laughs> you would have no incentive to ever run an ipfs node unless you plan on making stuff available so now it will give you a reason to run a node yourself and participate in the, this network because you can get paid for it and i think so right here though i have this question i've been i've been asking this a lot is like how much can you really make with any of these solutions and maybe we could talk about that at the end of this episode but like that's been a big question of mine. It's like, 
Because at first, I mean, I've been like, oh my God, this is so neat. You just like have storage and make some coin. And it's like a universal basic income for everybody. If you have a hard drive. <laughs> right. But when I've actually looked at some of the numbers that people have suggested, we're talking about like potentially very low margins for people. Right. Um, yeah. And the only people who could really make a lot with this would be people running storage farms. Storage farms? Yeah. 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 Uh, that's right. I mean, so if we, we can talk about this in the context of SIA, because that's the one I actually tried out myself. And um, SIA is very much like storage. It's contracts-based. Um, it has its own blockchain, so it's not built on Ethereum. Um, this blockchain is running, people are mining on it, um, and it does the same kind of encryption sharding, blah, blah, blah. Um, but I actually, I started up a miner, went fine. I just mined on something, some hardware I had at home. Um, didn't make any money at all. <laughs> I, don't, I don't think I even made one coin because you kind of need to join a, a pool as usual and then they have payout limits and whatever. So I didn't make anything, but I started to look at then, like it was reasonably easy to start up and seemed to work well. So I then looked into, okay, what, what would it take to actually be profitable? Uh, I um, looked at, I, I have a server at a German um, like hosting provider that makes uh, very, very cheap, dedicated servers available to people. And uh, you can buy extra hard drive space there. Uh, that's, you know, quite cheap, actually. Uh, so I looked at like buying or rent renting then uh, like 100 terabytes uh, of storage and then deploying that on the network. And uh, my profits would be something like a couple of bucks a day. So maybe, you know, 50 bucks a month or something. Uh, but of course, renting is not the optimal way to go. Um, it's very, very rare in history of blockchain that you've been able to rent hardware and make a profit off it. Um, so I started looking at, okay, what if I set up a NAS and like fill that with drives? And I think I did calculations based on buying the best value, like eight terabyte drives or something. And, um, having a couple hundred terabytes available, basically the system would pay off itself in oh. three to six months. And then it would, it would be like, you'd make, you know, a couple hundred bucks a month. Oh, that's um, not bad. No, but it, at the same time, it's, it was a, like a three, $4,000 investment upfront. Yeah. And then you got to wait a really long time. And the question <laughs> is what happens in that time? Like six months from now, when I'm profitable, will the coin be worth less? Will like as as with normal like proof of work mining, the more some like other people join and start mining, the less profitable you are. It's true. So um, it's the same thing here. Like if a ton of people joined, I wouldn't actually like suddenly my payback is in three or six months. It's six or twelve months, and um, it's this unpredictability in the market. And now if you're a believer, like if you're a true believer in this technology, you would say, well, the price of the coin is going to go up. And that will make up for all of the work today. And yes, it might look like pennies now, but look at Bitcoin when it started and people, you know, didn't know what they were mining. They just thought they were doing it for fun. Exactly. And now you were sitting in mining. Bazillionaires. And, yeah. Bitcoin was 10 bucks and you got one Bitcoin a month and it was uh, just 10 bucks a month and you're hardly paying for electricity bills. Yeah. Um, 
those people are laughing today. <laughs> but uh, the question is, like, will, will this happen? <laughs> also, how many people mine shit altcoins that, like, went nowhere? Right, Probably exactly. Probably lots of them. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, this is... And so this sort of, like... Maybe just wrap, like, how... So in, in the end, what was, like... Did you like mining Sia? Do you think you would ever do it again? I don't think so, no. Um, I don't... Like, there's many ways that I can make money um, in an easier way than buying a bunch of hard drives and putting them in a server. Uh, so for me, personally, it's not that interesting. But... Um, I can see that it will be for a lot of people. Like it's it's a low barrier to entry. It's much lower barrier to entry, in fact, than proof of work mining. Um, mm. With Bitcoin, you need ASICs. With Ethereum, you need GPUs. Setting up a GPU rig is way, way more complicated. It's way more complicated to keep it running. It's way more costly to keep it running. Uh, noisy and like it's just a, a hard thing to do. <laughs> Whereas buying a bunch of drives and setting them in a server We've been doing that for decades. Like that's an easy thing to do. So I can see that it would be attractive for a lot of people, especially people in regions where it's really cheap to buy drives. And that's and that sort of leads me to the sort of concluding question about all of these is are they viable? Will I mean, from what you just said, like maybe it becomes something that people really do, but it, it is like like every decentralized uh, technology, like like most uh, network effect-driven concepts, you need to have a lot of people excited about it. You need to have a lot of people dedicated to it and people who will keep their machines running. Um, and I think that's sort of what I'm... When I look across all of these different ideas or the different solutions, it's like, well, will people be excited enough past the sort of initial, like, oh, it's cool and I'm going to set up some sort of rig and... Will they actually become regular users of this? Will this actually transform everything? And would it be a multitude of different tokens or will it be one? Yeah. I guess those are the questions. It's, a, it's a very good question. I think the vision of having like millions of nodes around the world in a well-distributed, you know, random looking pattern, which is what you want for a CDN, um, the, it's not going to happen. Like there, there's not... It, there aren't enough people that are willing to kind of run this at home and do all of this stuff just for the sake of, I don't know, a couple of bucks. I mean, I, the, the coin value increase argument is an argument, but long-term it isn't like the, the yeah. goal long-term is for the value, like the price to reflect the value and the value doesn't go up. Like, yeah. I mean, it goes up a little bit, the, the larger the network becomes. Uh, and so I think that vision is kind of weird. I don't, I don't really believe in it, but I do believe that um, it's here and it's um, going to stick around. Um, the real question to make it like a, a thing, a proper thing, is if you can get companies to start using it. Uh, because companies are the major users of storage solutions. Mm -hmm. Like who uses S3 that isn't a company and isn't like a geek like me. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and uh, 
and the yeah i don't know and like getting a company to say i'm gonna put my data on some random dude's computer at home like i don't know that's a long stretch like you need to have shown some really solid performance characteristics and like have solid guarantees in place for this um and even then i don't know it's I mean, so many data protection laws now that are saying that you're only allowed to store it in this region and you're only allowed to do this or that. And so um, uh, this space will need to fight around all of that stuff. I see two sort of like dystopic visions, too. One is that like people just start like the Pied Piper model where you just start like forcing. I don't know if you know the reference, but like Silicon Valley. Spoiler alert, uh, season four, they basically like turn into decentralized storage on mobile, but it's like they basically force it like secretly on every phone in the region in the, in the, uh, in the, yeah. at this event. So it's like secretly your phone would basically be storing things or secretly your computer would be storing things. So that's one. And the other is, um, and this is actually, I think it's happened for some, for some people who are like in the kind of old P2P space, but like if you are holding data for other people and that data is in any way illegal or scary yep, yep. that somehow if they could trace back the fact that you are holding that thing that you would be liable yeah maybe dystopia is a little bit of a stretch it's not the biggest <laughs> dystopia ever these are like maybe two possible sh- like yeah. negative outcomes to this i think that's a valid uh, problem it's mitigated to some extent by encryption so if it's end-to-end encrypted you can never say what's stored on a computer. Like the computer mm-hmm. owner can't say what's stored on the computer. So you, you have like plausible deniability there, even if they some like even if they do a trace route from the person uploading to wherever it's stored, like you could say, I have no idea what's being stored. Um, I have heard of cases where that didn't hold up though. Amazingly. So, th- so that's the thing. Like laws are different in different regions and it's yeah. all like yeah, it's, I doubt that the like Chinese government would buy that. Oh, I didn't know I was storing this propaganda. Yeah. Uh, it, like, um, it, it's a tough problem, and and I think all those fights need to be fought before this is anything that's viable mainstream. Um, but before then, there will be a lot of users who just want to store their backups somewhere mm-hmm. or like less critical things. There are tons of those things and building a Dropbox on it or something like if I lose my Dropbox, it's not the end of the world. It's like, I'm just, whatever documents, my CV on there, whatever. <laughs> <laughs> what about the Pied Piper model? We just force everybody to store everything all the time. Yeah, that's it. I, I mean, mean what if need... it was built into the devices? Yeah, you would need then to have a player on this market that is willing to do that, which is essentially like Apple building it in or Microsoft building into Windows. Um, I think that's highly unlikely. Uh, They would have no reason to do it. But what will happen is what's happened with Bitcoin and other things that you can mine is that every website will start uh, putting this software on their website. And so as long as you're on a website, it will be doing some storage in the background. (laughs) Yeah, and that, I mean, I I think that's that's definitely... Uh, like a there is a 
maybe not to the extent that like there you know that there's these programs that are basically using up all of your empty space and and providing decentralized storage out there but that there's these sort of light versions of that where there's some some slightly not malicious but like you know self-serving actor who's trying to, to force you to do it but i don't think that necessarily affects the network so like websites um mining bitcoin hasn't affected the bitcoin network i don't think mm. website storing would really affect the storage network i mean it's it's just recognized as something kind of tangentially related and evil and so we need to find ways to stop that by you know the browser vendors making changes essentially yeah. uh, but it's not like yeah a, a destructive force in the network i think Cool. Frederick, always a pleasure. (laughs) Do you have any last thoughts on on this? The only last thoughts I would have is uh, to say that I think it's an interesting problem space. I think it's um, something that we should all be looking into a little bit more than we are. Um, And the only reason I say that is because... um, Ethereum smart contracts and blockchain stuff is getting so much hype and so much attention. But the fact of the matter remains that you cannot build a decent application on Ethereum without some sort of storage. Like if you want it to be fully decentralized, if you're buying into this vision of having a world computer, you need world storage. Mm -hmm. You can't centralize your storage and, and be a decentralized application. Um, so right now people are just making compromises, uh, but at at some point we have to ask ourselves, like, is it okay that we make these compromises? Maybe it is, but if we don't believe that it's okay and we do want a fully decentralized application structure, infrastructure, this is a key piece of it. Hmm. What I what I'm realizing, and actually through our conversation, is that I I actually see I agree with you. Or I think it's one of the most it's like this important character, this important piece of the decentralized future web, if that happens. Um, but then I when I go back to that idea of incentivization and and potentially you know help, like having people hold data and then be funded and have this be something almost like a passive income. I think of it a bit like uh, maybe it's a piece of a big kind of uh, suite of services that you are providing somehow through like storage could be one of them, streaming could be another, other kinds of proof of work, proof of whatever. Uh, you know, we can, when we look at the databases, we can also look at what, what their models are. But yeah, I, I'm, I'm just thinking like my, my real takeaway is like maybe this is like a, a piece of that, of that vision where... Um, like every human is kind of contributing something and every human is somehow being compensated for it. Yeah. I mean, uh, our digital lives are a huge part of our lives now and it's getting bigger. So instead of centralizing all the digital service providers, if we were all digital service providers, we would all share in the profit of providing those services. I mean, I think that's an idealistic and and great goal to go for. Um, So... Um, there are obviously 
more services than digital that the world needs, like growing food. But uh, um, I think uh, as as the kind of digital world gets more and more important and bigger and the industry around it gets bigger. If we can share in the profits, all the better. Cool. Well, thanks again for the chat. Thanks for listening. See you guys next time.